0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Richards. Hello. Eric Berry. Hey. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Catherine Myers. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Jared Norman. Hey. Now, Jared, first off, I have to thank you because I think you're the first guest in a while that we've had, whose name I can pronounce without help. So... I I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I got three easy first names as uh, all my names. I'm Jared Raymond Norman. So I don't know how I ended up with three first names, but
0: yeah, I mean, nothing against these other folks, but I always feel bad when I say their name wrong. So Uh, anyway, (laughs) do you want to introduce yourself really quickly?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm Jared Norman. Uh, I've been programming since I was about 10 years old. I wanted to make uh, computer games and did a bit of that while I was in my teens and stuff. Uh, For the past about seven years, I've been doing Ruby. Uh, Probably just coming up on seven years. And these days, I run a consultancy called Super Good Software doing Ruby on Rails stuff, mostly e-commerce and a little bit of SaaS apps and stuff, just consulting for different people.
0: Nice. Nice. We brought you in to talk about your article, You Can't Save Everyone. Uh, some exceptions should be left alone. Do you want to just kind of give us the, the elevator pitch for this blog post? And then we can dive in and talk about some of the stuff that surrounds it.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the work I do is around a... Ruby on Rails e-commerce platform called Solidus and its predecessor, Spree. And that's just basically a mountable engine that you can mount in your apps. And one of the things it provides, it provides a storefront, it provides uh, an admin interface and a bunch of other stuff, but what it provides is an API. uh, And that API is extensible, so you can add uh, your own controllers to that and provide new APIs for your front end to use or for apps or whatever you want. And one of the things that it had for a really long time was rescue from exception in the controller that you would inherit from. Um, and that caused all kinds of problems because you should really never rescue from exception. Um, but in general, it's not necessarily good practice to always rescue all of your errors when it rescued any exception and it, the, because it rescued exception and not standard error. It could rescue syntax errors or no method errors or any, anything. Um, and, that resulted in every single exception just getting erased. So if you were using one of the many error reporters, it would just get eaten. Uh, if you were doing something like certain practices with RSpec, it would eat your RSpec assertions errors and RSpec would never report the errors. So that just caused all kinds of problems and made it so you, we basically had no idea what was happening with uh, errors until we injected our own special error reporting around that.
0: I love it when people uh, rescue from exception. They just rescue everything.
1: Yeah, if you, if you don't realize just how many things there, like there's so many exceptions out there, and a lot of them you don't necessarily want to rescue.
0: Yeah, it's, well, it's just interesting. It's for me it it'll it'll wind up almost every time I've done it. it it'll wind up swallowing something that um, like is a syntax error or something like that that I actually need to fix. And it hides it from me. And then I'm sitting there banging my head on the wall going, why in the hell does this not work? And then it's, oh, oh, I have a syntax error and it's swallowing the error.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely the biggest one. Um, the development problems that that can cause is, is the worst. In production, at least you've probably got some sort of error reporter hooked up to to catch your exceptions and stuff. But mm-hmm. with with this one, it was just... In development, you'd be banging your head against something and you just have no idea that you just spelled something wrong.
0: Eric, you sound like you're trying to break in. Go ahead.
2: No, I, I'm I'm very used to like interrupting and then shutting up. So I I even get to the point where like when I start talking and I, I like physically can't stop talking, so I have to cover my mouth like a little child. Uh, <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> yeah, it happens every now and then, and I think it's only started since this podcast. So thank you, Chuck, for uh, bringing the child out in me. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that I was going to mention is uh, there. I I am going to argue that there is reason to catch every single error, and that would be to inject in there some sort of error reporting tool. Uh, So I believe that's how a roll bar Slack and and all these bug platforms work. They just go in and they like catch everything, report it, and then raise the error, right? Um, And I've done that a lot in the past too, where I'm like, okay, well, you catch everything or you catch and then re-raise. Have you seen a lot of use cases in the the catch and
3: re-raise?
1: Um, yeah, there's, there are definitely situations for that. Uh, definitely error reporters. That's where they belong. So the, the, the broader topic that this sort of made me more aware of was making sure that you're not doing things that reduce your visibility of how your application is working in production. So if all of your exceptions are getting eaten by this rescue from clause, you're going to have no idea whether something actually unusual is happening. But if an error reporter is catching them and then re-raising them, well, that's acceptable because it's literally telling you uh, that those exceptions happened.
4: What do you think their reason was for doing this?
1: Uh, I mean, I think they, a well-intended programmer was probably just trying to make the API a little more consistent uh, by returning those unprocessable entity codes when, uh, when anything unusual happened. And uh, eventually it was fixed. They switched it to rescue from standard error eventually. And then... Uh, later on in Solidus, they completely removed that error handling so that your normal error handling could just do its thing.
3: You know, I'm sitting here trying to think of a good reason outside of error reporting why you would want to rescue from exception. And just because I like playing devil's advocate, and I really can't think of a good reason. Like every time I find one, it's like, you know, let's say if you're creating some kind of UDP uh, communication and you don't care if they got the message or not, but you still wouldn't want to rescue from exception because what if you have a syntax error and stuff like you guys said within the code, then any kind of visibility on that is just completely lost. So I can't find a good reason.
1: Yeah, there are definitely tools that create exceptions that don't inherit from standard error, that inherit from exception directly. So RSpec is a good example of that. Uh, The assertion errors in RSpec all inherit from exceptions so that they're not caught by your application's logic in any way and they bubble up so our spec can catch them and prevent and present uh, those nice errors to you. but that's of course for their specific kinds of errors uh, they're not it's not exception directly
2: So one of the books that uh, was written on this topic was uh, written by a uh, Ruby Rogues alumni Avdi Grimm on exceptional Ruby. Have you read that? No I haven't. And I I honestly, I haven't read it either. Has anybody else read that? Can they add some, shed some light to to what that offers? I read it a long time ago. Um, I think it was one of
0: the first episodes we did with Avdi. We read the book and then talked about it. Um, So yeah, I I don't, (laughs) it it was like six years ago or something. I I honestly don't remember. But you can go check out the episode. And most of the stuff that's in there is still very relevant. I mean, the exception uh, handling in Ruby Really hasn't changed that much, um, you know. It's changed a little, you know, with different versions of Ruby. But for the most part, the principles in it are pretty much the same, and most of the errors and error classes are the same.
2: What is when is using exceptions a right way to go? Like when is capturing exceptions the right way to go? Um, and I asked that with an, uh, my own personal answer, which is anytime I'm dealing with an external API. Is like for example, I'm dealing with the Amazon API their library casts very specific errors that mean very different things. So for me to be able to catch those and handle those differently really makes a big difference. Or anytime I'm building an API for an external system, it seems that those errors are actually a really great way to be able to communicate the response back to the whole class versus just handling the, you know, parsing the response at that moment. Um, you set up um, different responses to throw different errors and all of a sudden you have a very um, uh, easy to grok um a uh, library that allows you to communicate with a third party api what are your thoughts jared
1: i think it comes down to how much you understand the exceptions that are being raised so if you have a really good understanding of why a certain exception is being raised when it gets raised then by all means you should be handling that and as you see new exceptions pop up in your application maybe that you've never seen before uh, you should look at them try and understand why they occurred and decide whether they warrant some application going to fix them, whether those kind of failures are ignorable or whether maybe you need to rework how you're approaching the problem, maybe.
0: Yeah. And generally, my rule of thumb is, is that um, when I'm using an exception, like when I'm specifically raising them, I don't do it very often. But when I do, it's because something is legitimately broken, right? So however I define broken in my app, um, and it could be that data is not in a state that I want it to be in, And there shouldn't be a way for it to get into that state. But, you know, there's a reasonable, you know, if you're in the console or something, maybe you can, uh, you know, you can do funny stuff in there that you're probably not going to do in your controllers or things like that. Um, You know, so it raises that exception state as opposed to, say, a validation, for example, in Rails, where it's saying, you know, the the data you passed in is invalid. The exception state is the data that I got out of the database or something like that um, is in in a format that I, you know, I don't accept or things like that. And then what I do is I look at the exception classes that are already in Ruby and Rails and see if there's an exception there that I can attach a message to that that explains it well. And then if there's no exception to that, you know, something like that, then I'll finally turn around and, and do it. Or in Eric's example, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a library that connected to the Project Honeypot, projecthoneypot.org. And uh, it uses DNS lookups to figure out if, uh, an IP address is a spam uh, location, and you know they they run honeypots to figure that stuff out. and so if if you made a query that was poorly formatted, it'd raise an exception because that you know it, it's broken. Or it's, you know uh, things like that. And the reason is is because it's a third party library that needs to bubble up problems. and I, since I don't know the shape of your code, I need some way of communicating it back to you. And so, hey, that's a bad format. That doesn't work. I got a bad response from the API. That kind of thing um, is is where I'm communicating that stuff. But if it's something where I control the entire stack like Rails and I can see what's coming in and I can see what's going down to the third-party libraries and everything else, generally I'm not putting an exception on that stuff because I can see the whole picture and I can handle it myself. And so it's, it's really when it has to communicate with something else or if It's communicating, hey, something here is in a broken state that I don't know how to handle.
1: There's a lot to be said, too, for when you're raising exceptions, that things are in a state that you don't expect. For making sure you communicate in those exceptions enough information to actually help yourself or whoever's actually looking into the problem. One thing I've seen is people pulling data out of, say, nested hashes. And they'll just use square brackets a whole bunch of times to index in there. And then if some element in there is nil, if you've made some sort of error, uh, you'll just get an undefined method square brackets for nil class, which is really unhelpful because you have no idea where in that chain of things the nil actually is. It could be the first one, or it could be the second to last one. Um, and so instead, either. Attaching the actual hash to the error, or using you can just chain fetch if you want. It's it's kind of ugly, but you, you, that way you'll actually get this this key didn't exist or whatever. Um, or or using dig and then erroring if uh, if the result is nil and providing the actual original hash or something like that. Just so that you actually have enough information uh, to even attack the
0: problem when you see those kinds of errors. You know, in that example with the hashes, I've also done things where I've actually so I get the no square brackets for nil class. I've created my own exception for that and then just done a quick sanity check or something like that on something like the hash or the object that I'm getting back um, just to do a quick, this is a valid object kind of thing. And that way I do get more information back. But I, I like the chaining of fetch. Yeah, but yeah, it can get pretty ugly. So, you know, just depending on how you want to handle it and what makes your code approachable, um, I, I think is really the rule of thumb there.
3: I like using the dig method for hashes, looking up stuff. I always found that to work uh, really well. Similar. I
4: can that.
3: dig
2: that. <laughs> 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 you know, I wish other languages would pick up on that. And and I think I think actually uh, Ruby took a while to, to pull that from other languages. But boy, I've been working with Elixir, and 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 the 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 beauties of Ruby. And the elegance of Ruby in in making it so I don't have to work as hard is so wonderful. And I miss it. Um, Yeah, I do wish other languages would pick up on that.
4: I think that's an interesting point of developing your code for better exception handling in clearer ways. I don't know if I've ever thought about that. Do you feel like you think about that when you're writing your code first or is it only when you run into all of those annoyingly vague Exceptions that you go back and say, okay, how can I rewrite this to give me better exceptions?
1: It's definitely something that's easy to forget about. And I definitely do all the time. But generally thinking about writing and building features so that... Both developers and whoever's going to be using the software have better visibility on how how they work and what's happening is something that I've put a lot of effort into uh, recently, especially working in e-commerce because there's money changing hands. There's all kinds of different people. You have both customers as well as uh, a whole organization, support teams, fulfillment, all these other people using these applications. And they're very complicated. So when things go wrong, they can go wrong at very many levels and affect very many different things. And uh, a given problem might not be visible until an order gets to the warehouse or something like that. So trying to build everything so that if if things go wrong, we can quickly figure out what goes wrong. And ideally, we can figure out what's going wrong before anything gets too bad is definitely something I've had to focus on a lot on more recently.
0: So one thing I'm getting from the uh, title of your blog post is that you can't um, save everything, right? You can't rescue everything, um, and we talk kind of about the general case where you rescue exception. But are there other areas, you know, maybe more nuanced areas where you shouldn't be rescuing those particular types of errors or those particular types of exceptions? So I guess the idea is more along the lines of um, it. It seems like somebody may listen to this and go, you know what? Um, I, I'm I'm going to run into this problem, so I'm going to create an exception for it. I'm going to run into this other problem, I'm going to create an exception for it. You know, when is that the right tool and when is that not the right tool? You know, when, when do you want to just, you know, put some conditional around it or some kind of sanity check or a guard clause or something like that as opposed to using an exception and a rescue?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it sort of, it. that's really specific to where you're working, what kind of domain, but there's going to be a lot of situations where a given error might just probably mean something inconsequential. Something went wrong. Uh, you don't need to write special logic for it. You don't need to create a special exception class for it. You can just return nil or something. Uh, and and that's often fine. Uh, I like to be safe. And in those situations, if like there's a univ- if I can imagine a universe where I I'm debugging a problem and I'm like, oh, I, I wish I I wish I knew whether that had happened, I'll at least log something so that I can go look at the logs and be like, okay, uh, this other peripheral problem that I'm working on, I can see this other unusual thing is happening more often than it should happen. Uh that that's definitely a thing that comes up. Uh, it, again, it just sort of it sort of comes down to understanding your errors. And if you do understand them and they aren't important, then by all means don't actually raise them, just just swallow those ones. Specific errors are always fine to swallow as long as you understand
5: what's causing them. That sounds a lot like just good Ruby advice. I've been thinking about some of these people I've worked with that come out of heavily typed, strongly typed systems, and they love, love types. They love the pure definition of everything. In Ruby, we use, well like your advice you know we're going to use a little bit of wisdom based on our domain based on look we we get it you know we're 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 not (laughs) we're not java (laughs) we're not a lot of things and so we're we're gonna we're gonna get a the the developer is expected to know a little bit about how is this going to be used what's the what's the effect and then now we're the mature people in here doing something rather than you know, just type all the things, strongly type all the things, or define all the things, or you know, write. I've written code before that had, I'm not kidding, like five hundred lines of error exception just to be wow. precise, consistent, and complete. And I came back to that and said, Yeah, there's no way I'm gonna use that. And I stripped it out and I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't
3: thinking. <laughs> when Ruby, you really only have two types. It's either nil no or it's not nil, no, right? Yeah. Everything else is not <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> kind
5: of. <huh? laughs>
0: there you go. Go rescue basic object.
5: <laughs> <laughs> now I've done that sometimes. Uh, maybe it's an anti-pattern. Uh, I don't think I've ever been proud of that. But I've I've rescued. I've I've rescued basic object to do some funny logging and then re-raised it, just because I was clueless what what was going on you know so i remember doing those kinds of things so that to me is maybe a good good anti pattern a good you know whenever i'm i'm trying to rescue big basic things i'm basically t- admitting to myself i'm i'm out of my league right now i don't know how the system works yet
1: yeah it's one of the nice things that uh, a lot of the error reporters that are available for ruby support is just adding context to your errors so for web applications that's usually things like user IDs and information about the session but for other you you can you can attach lots more if you have more information that's going to be helpful that you can pull out of the session or out of the rack request or whatever it is
5: I like I like that too from the idea that you know interfaces and layers they contain the complexity in a beautiful way and web apps tend to do that very well where you know you you're not going to get into all the things that could go wrong you're just going to you know, receive a a response. Um, You know, there are, the separation of concerns makes this a lot easier. You know, that probably at the interface level where I'm going to either internally or externally talk to another system, those exceptions need to be well understood. Internally, not so much, maybe.
1: Yeah, and like the, the blanket rescuing also doesn't sort of communicate the nuances of what the exception was. So in this case, we were, returning 422 unprocessable entity for all exceptions, which is not semantically correct. You, like, if uh, the database blew up, that's, that's not an unprocessable entity. That's, that's a 500 server error. That's, uh, that's something else. And there's no mm-hmm. way to know from, you know, the, even the response logs that that's what's happening.
5: You know, I, I've noticed uh, once the systems are up and, you know, all these corners we've cut to get things up, and then when I'm starting to really cull through the the logs to figure out if we're as healthy as we think we are, and then I start finding things like this where we're not getting 500 errors, we're, we're getting unprocessable. And, and, and just a lot of, well, those that's where I notice is in the logs. Yeah, the system doesn't make sense yet. Um, or I couldn't really tell you if the system's healthy if I just did a, an error, you know, an error count from the logs. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, sort of building things like the dashboard or something like that uh, can provide you some visibility and some more tools for reasoning about whether your system's healthy, whether things are working, whether something really bad is happening. I know I've built dashboards for applications to help organizations with some visibility on something and that we've launched them in production and gone oh no that's those aren't good numbers and you know if we'd had the dashboard in place from the beginning we might have uh, been able to deal with those a lot faster it's definitely something to work with organizations when you're when you're thinking about building a feature think about not just what the feature does for the end users, but how you can understand whether it's working. And for a lot of apps, that's going to be analytics or something is going to get you a lot of the way. But sometimes you need actual in-app uh, tools to, to understand that and to to build things so that you can go back and look at what's actually happening.
5: I, I like how what we're talking about, whenever I do it well, it's it's got the the feeling of Done and done, you know, it it reduces my mental load and it allows me to focus and concentrate better. So there's some things I do because it's a feature request or it's it's a bug that has to be handled. But when I document, when I handle errors better, when I teach somebody, you know, when I um, automate some of the processes, when I get things better monitored, my stress levels go way down. I don't realize I've been carrying this tension because I've been remembering things that are broken or remembering things I wasn't sure about. And then, as I handle some of these things, and I see that it's handled, and then I realize, okay, yep, I can get out of the way. You know, I could be hit by a bus, and the team's going to be okay, uh, or they'll be more okay. They'll <laughs> still have to live with my with my nonsense, but but not as much of it. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. One thing that I'm curious about: Do you test for when you expect to see an exception? So, um, um, uh, I think our spec has like a raises or something and test unit. Yeah, It has something I can't remember a cert. Anyway,
1: yeah. So, I mean, not all exceptions are easy to reproduce in tests. Um, so some of them, but those are often ones that I'm happy to see fail. So, uh, say an external service fails, I'm probably hitting that external service in some kind of Delayed job or sidekick or something like that, uh, and I'm happy to see it retry. If I'm not, I will sometimes stub out calls to raise errors so that I can make sure that the right thing happens. Uh, which it's a little feels a little hacky, but it is what it is. If I if I want to make certain that a certain feature is going to work in, in a certain way, given say network failures or something like that, that's sort of the only way to go. The only reasonable way to go, anyway.
0: Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues.
2: Do you ever feel like there's a lot of pressure when you wake up in the morning thinking, I better put out some super good software today? <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, I, yeah, uh, but your company's not named super good software.
3: Yes,
1: it's not like Tenderlove with his adequate systems or whatever he calls it. Right.
2: <laughs> so I just think to myself, I'm like, huh, that's, you know, that's ambitious because I mean, most of the days you might put out super good software, but man, you're like, you're putting the guarantee right on the box.
1: <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd never, I'd never looked at it as, as like pressure. I'd always looked at it as like, that's the, that's the, that's the goal. Yeah, we we can miss sometimes, but but as long as that's what we're striving for. Uh, That's
5: awesome. Um, I I work with a company. uh, One of our clients is Best Company. Man, that doesn't give me any room to make any mistakes. I've got to be the best. (laughs) And maybe they could do it every day. That's a lot of pressure.
4: I think (laughs) somebody should start start a company called Aggressively Mediocre. <laughs> I like
5: it. <laughs> well, Mike Moore's uh his company's called uh Humane Code, something like that. And I love that. Yeah. It's about being humane. Um <laughs> I can handle humane easier than I can handle <laughs> best. I think there's a there's a QA company out
1: there that's called uh test company do not use. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Nice. Uh, So does all of this banter about uh, company names mean that we're ready for picks or do we have more to talk about here? (laughs) Do you have any stories? Does anyone have any stories about exceptions that have caused them particular uh, headaches or have saved their bacon one way or the other?
2: I have one recently that, that, um, it's quite the opposite. So I had, um, we use a, a certain error tracking system for CodeFund, and we had this error, and we have an allocation of 100,000 reported errors per month in our account. And for some reason, like this one zapped through all 100,000 within like 12 hours before we could even respond to it. We're like, all right, oh, wow, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: I, I had a similar experience a few weeks ago with a a client that was on one of the cheaper tiers of one of the error reporting services and the, I I got the message that they were we, we were at quota for error reporting. And I was like, "What well, how could that possibly be? Like I don't even think that many people are using this service that there could be that many errors." And sure enough, uh, a bunch of bots had decided to like aggressively scan us for uh, vulnerabilities, that, it's like PHP vulnerabilities in its Rails site, and it had just been erroring thousands and thousands of times per minute for the entire night because somebody did that.
3: Well, you know, for errors and stuff, I'm a huge fan of Sentry for error reporting. Uh, they offer self-hosted versions, so you don't have to, you know, if you do have a couple of servers or one of hosted in the cloud, you're able to do that and you're not restricted by the number of free limits or reports that a hosted solution would have. And for me, what i noticed on a earlier project that was rushed through the development cycle and needed to get out the door, there was inherently a lot of bugs because there wasn't time to write tests. They were like, oh, don't worry about tests, just get the code done, you know, we need to sell this. So I'm like, okay, all right, well, you know, here comes Sentry. And as uh, errors started happening before the customer could even report it, we were able to see those errors and get a hot fix or something out there right away. And so, I mean, keeping track of your errors or having a good error management software can really help you provide better customer service.
0: Yeah. Disclaimer Sentry, they haven't come out. Um, I haven't published any episodes where they're the sponsors yet but they will probably be a sponsor of this particular episode when it goes live.
3: Nice. So um, I've only had experience with Sentry, but I know there's a lot of other ones out there, Rollbar and stuff. Does anyone have experience with the other ones and what should someone pick? So I'm picking Sentry. The
1: self-hosted thing on Sentry is really nice. Uh, I've used a bunch of Rollbar. I've used a bunch of Honey Badger. I've used a bunch of... Uh, one of the other ones that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, and, oh, snack. I actually wrote the Elixir integration for Bugsnag as well. Um, they're, they're all pretty good. Uh, that that self-hosted thing might push me towards the sentry uh, though.
0: I'm going to refrain from commenting just because we've had several of them sponsor the shows. Um, I, I really like most of the solutions out there. I will say that. Um, and I, I wouldn't advise anyone to steer clear of any of the ones that I've used. And I've used a lot of them because I want to be able to speak to what they do well when I uh, put together a sponsorship message. But yeah, Sentry um, is the one I've used most recently. And like I said, it's it's due to the sponsorship and I've been pretty happy with them. I've been pretty happy with most of the other ones too, though, that I've used over the years. So.
3: Yep. And I wrote up a blog article on how you can set up and install Sentry on your own self-hosted solution. So... I'll I'll use that as one well, of my picks since we're talking about errors. I think I'll refrain
2: from mentioning anything as well. I've I've dealt with multiple companies on a advertiser level, so I, I don't want to show any preference to any of them. But in my experience, all of them are great, um, and you really can't go wrong. Just using one is the most important thing. Yeah, I, I can give some That's general it. advice, and that is, is that a lot of them have
0: the basic functionality of collecting the errors and giving you stack traces and things like that so if you're looking at options consider which other options you want so uh, for example um, i was playing with Sentry yesterday again because of the sponsorship and they also offer like a a customer feedback feature so if that's important to you you might want to look at them Um, some of the other ones offer different levels of like application server tracking and things like that. And so if you run into some kind of actual uh, system level error on your server, things like that, they'll track that for you. And so I, I also hesitate a little bit just to say this one's the best one, um, because you you may need a feature that one of the other ones don't have. And so, yeah, just go look and see what they, they offer. See how that fits in with your workflow see if it'll, you know, notify you the way that you want. But most of them integrate with things like Slack and email as well. So yeah, just just look at what, you're, what you want your workflow to be. Uh, look at the features they offer and then make a decision based on that. And, you know, then you're going to be picking the thing that makes the most sense for you. And so if the yep. self-hosting thing is kind of the, the thing for you, then maybe Sentry is the right answer. If you don't care about that or you don't want to bother with it and somebody else offers a feature that Sentry doesn't have, then go with them. Um, but yeah, um, that most of them do a terrific job as far as what we're talking about. So, well,
5: what's interesting for me is that you know, I mean, obviously as application developers, we want to build good systems. Um, but I end up in a lot of conversations with people around business intelligence and the lifetime value of a customer and what their experience is, how often they come, and what kinds of experiences they're having. And so we're looking at things like. Um, errors and we're looking at things like uh, value add experiences you know so we're, we're, we're trying to track from a data perspective where we want to track how are we doing and and are there a group of people sometimes there's power users that just hit a lot of errors and so coming up with what's your workflow and and how does this work and, and what kinds of things have we got to do for these people Because one of the most expensive things, probably the most expensive thing for a SaaS company is build the software. And the second most expensive thing is the churn. You know, when people, uh, when retention is low, it's very expensive to bring somebody in and uh, you just can't maintain that as a business. And so having something like this in place, having these kinds of conversations around how we're handling errors, ultimately it really does boil down to what's that? Customer experience going to be like, and what can we do about it um, to 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 treat people the way we you know we want to treat them?
1: Yeah, one of the things a lot of the error reporters support now is JavaScript error reporting as well, mm. which is extremely noisy, but can really save you if you've got something really weird happening for some chunk of your user base. Uh, it's, it's really tough because everyone's weird browser extensions are going to cause all kinds of dumb errors that have nothing to do with your application. But it does, it does provide some visibility that sometimes you need, especially if you have a really JavaScript-heavy app or experience on your site.
5: Yeah, and, and since users are not all created equally, you know, their value to us and our value to them, you know, and so it's really easy to get lost. You know, if I just add it up, say, yeah, I'm getting about this many errors per hour, that doesn't tell me much. Like, yeah, the, the power users, the, the profitable users that are in the weird corners of our app all the time, or they're in the JavaScript, or they're in the, the weird browsers. So being able to figure out, because now I can go to work on something like, hey, you know what, I really want to keep keep our big, you know, our, our big wells, our big, our big spenders or something. And I can find them easier if I have these kinds of tools.
1: Yeah, so we're uh, attaching that kind of context to the errors. That most, uh, most, or all of the reporter support is is a big deal. You can you can say this error happened to this user and they're on this plan or they have a LTV of this or whatever it is, and uh, that can help you decide which errors you need to fix immediately and which can which you can hold off on.
5: Yeah, yeah, and and to be fair, a lot of this is a pipe dream for a lot of the products I've worked around. You know, like this is an ambition to to get there, but people have been. I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm short-sighted. And we say, all right, so we're going to build these 10 features and we want to build these hundred more. And so that's what we focus on. But in the priority list is got to be these errors and these user experiences um, that usually will come up higher than some of the features we would have built. So it takes sometimes a lot of effort to do the kinds of things we're talking about today, but and and it takes a mature um, team to be able to say yeah and we're going to prioritize it because our our gut reaction actually would have taken us the other way so i gotta say
2: i, I uh wore my canada hat specifically for you jared
1: oh thank you yeah. I, yeah. beautiful
5: yep <laughs> i wore my zion national park hat specifically for myself i guess I was <laughs> that way. <laughs> that's awesome
1: I'm in the corner of Canada where the weather's always nice, so.
2: I did not <laughs> think that existed. Yeah, Victoria, BC. <laughs> and we, uh,
1: we have the, we're easily the most temperate part of Canada. We get snow some years and rarely gets over 30 degrees Celsius here. So it's uh, it's just very comfortable.
5: <laughs> <All right. laughs> My wife Which is really
0: uh, Pardon? Which corner is that?
1: Uh, that's the West coast. We're sort of, we're, we're actually below the 49th. We're just a short ferry ride from Seattle, but we get like less than half as much rain as they do.
5: My, my wife is literally this week up, um, uh, renewing our passport so we can go back to Victoria. Um, love, love that corner of the the world.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful place to be.
5: (sighs) Yep.
0: All right. Well, anything else we want to talk about before we do picks? Uh, I will take the long silence as a no. So let's go ahead and do picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android. And all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid, on average, five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says, pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to GoFreshBooks.com slash DevChat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. David, do you want to start us off with picks?
5: Sure. So last time, we, I talked about getting outside, and I was reading a book called um, Atlas of a Lost World, and I finished that book, wonderful book. And so I took my own advice and I got outside and I'm just on this geology kick and this, um, having a great time with it. So I, I drove up to, um, Fossil Butte National Monument, beautiful place. The ranger there, the rangers there are amazing. They'll talk for hours if you want about everything. And, um, anyway, so I found up there a a book. My pick today is a book. Uh, there's three books from John McPhee. He's one of my favorite authors, This guy, um, he knows how to put a sentence together. Two in the morning, I'm reading Basin and Range by John McPhee. And I'm just reading it out loud. It's just so, it's like poetry. It's so beautiful. And it just, it creates a, a, a legacy of place and a sense of what's going on and just an intelligent view of, rocks (laughs) rocks <laughs> that maybe we're driving over. And so he, he has one four page paragraph that takes us from the East coast to the West coast that I just had to wake my wife up in the middle of the night to read it to her. It was so well done. So my pick today is uh, John McPhee's basin and range and it's part of it, so it's one book in, in three in, in his geology stuff. It's really, really fun. Awesome.
2: Eric, what are your picks? Uh, I just have one pick, um, and I would like to, uh, it's a PSA uh, telling people that you're not alone. I suffer from this, and many of you might suffer from this. They call it resting bitch face. What it means is that when you're sitting there, <laughs> your, your face looks like you're pissed off. And it's not your fault. And I want to let you know, it's not your fault. <laughs> what happens is that... What happens is that when we start getting older, our skin starts loosening, gravity takes over, we seem to not look engaged, we seem to look frowny-faced because the gravity is pulling the sides of our face down. <laughs> you just understand. <laughs> RBF is real. In fact, In fact, it's real, say scientists, which I am linking in the notes. It is real. <laughs> So if, if you suffer like me, you're not alone, thank you.
3: <laughs> so how do I explain this to my wife that she has resting bitch face? Or do I just... Over- oh, <laughs> I
4: don't <laughs> think yeah, yeah, that's you know? a good thing to...
0: In fact, I, I take it back. How nice is your brother's couch? <laughs> All righty. Dave, what are your picks?
3: All right. So my first pick is the blog post for configuring a Sentry server on Ubuntu 16.04. It's, um, I'll post a link to it and it's Sentry is really awesome. And I love it, but setting it up initially was kind of a uh, a bit of a mystery. So I documented it mainly for myself, but then hopefully it'll bring help to others. And my second pick is this course that I'm going through at our local church called Reengage. It is a marriage enrichment program that we're using uh, to really just strengthen our marriage, and it's for marriages in any. in any stage, whether you're struggling to get along, it's broken, or you just want to grow closer as a couple. So it's something that I've really enjoyed being a part of for the past year. And it's something that my wife and I are now becoming leaders uh, to help other couples. So uh, I'll post a link to that. And it's something that I would really recommend if you're married and if you're married. So they have courses all over the US and stuff, except for Utah for some reason. Cool. Uh, Catherine, what are your picks?
4: Since it's summertime and there's lots of travel, my pick this week is Scott's Cheap Flights. It is a newsletter that will let you know when there's a really cheap flight somewhere. Um, so I definitely keep an eye on it, um, especially if I know, hey, I have like, I have two international weddings next summer. <laughs> so I'm going to definitely keep an eye on that. They let you know, especially if there's mistake fairs. Um, those are... Pretty incredible. You can find like a flight to Bali for $350 round trip. Um, It's a blessing and a curse, though, because you want to go on vacation all the time. (laughs) You know, then you you get pressed up on the
3: FBI watch list.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So, uh, this last weekend, um, I spent my weekend working on my yard, which means Dave, Dave picks his tool, uh, toys, uh, pretty often on the show. And, um, I just, I, I didn't get to play with my toys. I went and rented some. Um, so I rented a, a tiller cause we sprayed all the grass in our yard and just killed it. Cause, um, we wound up killing more weeds than grass by doing that. Um, and anyway, yeah, our, our yard was in pretty sad shape. So I, I just tilled it all under it's rained the last two days, and that's kind of helped break things up, I think in the soil a bit. Um, but yeah, so uh, Home Depot tool rental is one of my picks. Um, they They have a few tools that i don't use often enough to go buy on my own, and uh, the tiller was one of them, so I wound up tilling my um, my yard and my neighbor's yard, and uh, anyway, um, so yeah, we got that done and then um, i I also the local dump. Uh, collects green waste and they sell a cubic yard for $20. And so I went and got a few yards of uh, mulch for my yard. And so it, it's pretty interesting how, how far you can go on a budget, I guess, um, if you're trying to do it yourself. So yeah, I'm going to be laying sod if uh, David or Eric want to come over on Saturday. Um, and uh, <laughs> anyway, um, and I'll be working on my sprinklers and stuff on Thursday. But yeah, it it, it turned out to be really helpful. And then one other pick that I have in about two weeks is re-record this. This may come out after. uh, But anyway, um, I'm going to be at podcast movement in Philadelphia. And uh, so if you're interested in um, meeting up, it's funny how many people I've met at podcast events for podcasters that wind up turn out to be listeners of one of the shows. So anyway, if you're interested in meeting up, that would be awesome. And then one last pick, and this this isn't a JavaScript show, but we do plenty of web development, uh, Framework Summit. And that's at the beginning of October um, in Park City, Utah, which is out in our neck of the woods. Um, they're basically bringing in the core teams from Vue, uh, Angular, and React, and some of the other ones. I think Tom Dale's coming from Ember, um, and they've got a bunch of other folks. And basically, it's a conference about web frameworks or JavaScript front-end frameworks. Um, And so you kind of get the state of all these different frameworks. I'm actually giving the talk on the 15 minute talk on uh, stimulus. And so we should probably do an episode on that so I can run through it on the show. But anyway, so if you want to come out to that, uh, I'm also looking forward to meeting up with people at that event. So I'll just, I'll just put those out there. And then finally, if you are a podcaster Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm looking for users for my podcast app that I've been building for a while in Rails um, for my particular needs. And I want to make sure that some of the stuff that's specific to how I do things isn't so specific that nobody's going to want to use it. Um, So if you're interested in any of that, I will probably let you use it for free for a while before I, you know, make you pay for a subscription. So uh, anyway, if you're interested in any of that, uh, feel free to reach out to me. And my email is chuck at devchat.tv. Jared, what are your picks?
1: Uh, One of my picks is I was in Seattle uh, a couple months back for Deconstruct Conf, which was a really excellent conference, and that could be a pick too. Uh, I'll definitely be going back to that next year with a lot of really interesting talks there. But while I was there, I visited the Living Computers Museum there, and it's this really, really cool museum that has all kinds of really old computers, So they have all kinds of mainframes. They have all kinds of early personal computers, all kinds of really interesting hardware. And one of the coolest things is you can actually use a lot of it. So if you want to go in and sit down at a PDP-11 and start we're packing out some code on it. You can actually go in and do that uh, as well as if you have kids or something, it has a whole bunch of stuff geared towards kids. So that was a really cool experience. I know a lot of people from the conference went and had a ton of fun and I went with a friend of mine as well. And it's just, just a blast getting to play with all those really old computers. Uh, my other pick is fuzzy finders. So there's a couple of really good command line fuzzy finders. FZF is one of them and fuzzy uh, spelled FZY. Um, or Z, I guess, for the you Americans said. listening. Um, and, uh, the, they basically, they take in, uh, st- input as a bunch of lines and provide you an interface for fuzzy matching on that, inter- uh, on that. And that's like uh, control P in in some of the popular editors or something like that, that gives you, uh, fuzzy matching for files, but you can wire it up to anything you want. So I've wired it up for things like if I want to search for gems and open a terminal uh, in a gem that's in the current project, I can get a list of the gems, fuzzy match, and just automatically open a terminal from there. Or from my editor, I've set it up so that I can fuzzy match on gems in the project and then fuzzy match on files in those gems, which makes it really quick jumping around and finding code in the dependencies that I'm working with. So that makes my life a lot easier, especially when dealing with bigger frameworks with lots of code that I'm integrating with. So, yeah, those are my picks.
0: Awesome. And I think you also said that uh, Super Good Software is your consultancy. So, yeah. assuming that you have uh, time that you're trying to sell, um, if people need your particular brand to help, where do they go? Uh,
1: so, you can find uh, Super Good Software at supergood.software. Uh, on the web or supergoodsoft on Twitter Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, supergoodjared
0: all right well thanks everyone for coming and talking and uh, yeah we'll also you know link to your blog post and hopefully people get good information from there and uh, look around see if there's anything else that Jared's written that you uh, find useful Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everybody next week
3: Bye.
2: Bye.
0: Bye. See ya. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.